Well, welcome again to everyone. Thanks for... Um, we welcome you to ResPres, and we are delighted that you're here today with us, especially those who are visiting. We are going through the Gospel of John, uh, and so we are this week in John chapter 8, uh, and this is, once again, a very heavy passage of Scripture, and so I pray uh, that we would all focus our minds to pay attention to it. And with that, can I ask you all to stand one last time out of respect for the reading of God's Word. God's Word says that hearing comes by faith, and faith by the Word of Christ. So let's all listen intently to the inerrant Word of God, chapter 8, starting at verse 31. This is God's inerrant and infallible Word. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, then you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for these somewhat terrifying words that we hear Jesus speaking to these men. Lord, we pray that you would show us, show us, Lord, how sin attempts to enslave us, how the devil attempts to enslave us through sin to kill us so that we might turn to you and stay with you and live with you, and seek your face, and wish to abide in your house forever so that we might be free in Christ, Lord. 
Oh God, our hearts are restless and wandering and we need you to help us. Father, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me start out by telling you two related stories. They might not sound like they have anything to do with each other at first, but I promise you, they do. The first is this. I uh, was, a couple weeks ago, I told you a funny story about how I almost drowned at, at, at Dog Beach in OB because I remembered back in the glory days when I was a lifeguard on Catalina Island and I thought I could swim out too far and I swam out too far. Well, I was a lifeguard on Catalina Island, and part of the training of being a lifeguard is, is understanding how to approach someone when, um, when they're in distress in the water. When someone is drowning in the water, all they're concerned about is grabbing onto something that floats. And if you approach them directly from the front, that's all they see you as, a flotation device. And they will latch onto your head and many times take you under with them. And so the, the procedure is you have to dive under them with your, with your lifesaver, your, your preserver, get behind them and either get them, in a, in a, get them in a locker, give them the life preserver, and then when they get the hold of that life preserver, they grab onto it with a death grip. They hold onto that thing with all they've got. And then you can pull them to shore, to safety. Second story. comes from... Uh, the movie Master and Commander. I don't know if anybody ever even remembers this movie. We, have the sh- we actually have the boat down in, in, on the, in the harbor in San Diego, but there's a sailor on the ship who believes that the ship is cursed because of him. And so he decides to commit suicide, and the way he does that is they're out in the middle of the sea. How he decides to do that is he grabs tightly onto a cannonball and jumps over the side of the ship. And he sinks down to Antonio's level. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm sorry, Antonio. No. He's got a death grip on that cannonball, and the cannonball is dragging him down. And the point is that he holds on to that cannonball for as long as he can, and by the time he lets go, he's too far under to swim back up, and he drowns. And so, okay, what do these two stories have to do with each other? Uh, the main theme of this passage that we're going to talk about is something called abiding in Christ. And that's an old word we don't really use anymore. Nobody says, you know, hey, are you abiding at the movie theater? No one, we just don't use that word anymore. It's an old, archaic word, so we don't really know what it means. Some people have tried to replace it, or, or you hear people say cling to Christ or clinging to Jesus. But outside of saran wrap, we really don't understand what that means either. And so I want to suggest that the word abide that we're going to look at today is better translated into our culture by the word death grip. Abiding means that you are holding on to something as tightly as you can, that you are grasping onto it for dear life. Uh, and so, um, ultimately, we all know what abiding means. We just don't know that word. It means to hold on to something for dear life, Right? And in the, in the illustrations that I gave, there's two different things that people are holding on to. One is people are, one, in the first story, people are holding on desperately to the lifesaver. They're not saving themselves. They're just clinging to it as the lifesaver saves them. Maybe a better illustration would be the helicopter 
rescue out in deep sea where the, the rescue driver jumps in and makes that move and then hooks them up to a harness and they go up. Even as, if you watch those people going up, they're not going up like this. They're going up like this. They have that, the cable in front of them in a death grip. They're holding on with all their might, even though ultimately it's the strap and the harness and the helicopter and the rescue mission that's bringing them up. In the other picture, the man is desperately clinging to a cannonball and the cannonball is sinking under the abyss, taking him to his death. And so the big question that Jesus is asking us in this passage is, is that we all know what it means to abide. We all are desperately holding on to something. And Jesus is asking us here this question. What are you abiding in? What are you clinging to? What are you desperately holding on to? Do you have a death grip on the lifesaver or do you have a death grip on the cannonball? And before I read the thesis for this sermon, the big idea, I, gotta, I need to get you all to promise me something. I need you to promise me that you won't freak out until the end. That's what I mean by that. I'm going to read this statement, this, this statement, and all to the first point is going to be rough. And all through that, some of your hearts, I know for a fact, are going to start to flutter and you're going to start to ask the wrong question. And the wrong question is, um, am I really saved? That's the wrong question. The right question, a much better question to ask is, am I abiding in Christ? And as we move through this and get a better idea of what it means to abide in Christ, I hope that you will see, as I saw this week, that that is the, the, the fact that that's the right question is very, very good news. So, I want everybody to promise me. In fact, I want you to repeat after me. I promise not to freak out until the end. Okay. on tape. Here we go. The thesis, the big idea, the one thing that Jesus wants us to know more than anything in this passage is this, that abiding in sin leads to slavery and death, but a true and abiding faith leads to freedom and life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Abiding in sin leads to slavery and death but a true and abiding faith leads to freedom and life in Christ Jesus our Lord. First point, abiding in sin leads to slavery and to death. Let's read verses 31 through 34. And so, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now there's all kinds of, 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 of speculation about what might be going on here in the commentaries because as you knew this, it's kind of, it's ironic. It's almost comical. Here are the Jews 
who are currently enslaved to Rome, who were just enslaved to Greece. Prior to that, they were enslaved to Babylon. Before that, they were enslaved to Syria. And prior to that, in their very beginnings, for the first 400 years of their existence, they were enslaved, slavery of bondage to Egypt. And yet, there they are saying to Jesus, we've never been enslaved to anyone. What could they possibly mean? Some people try to like let them out of it by saying they mean they're not really slaves or they're not spiritually slaves, anyone but Yahweh. But I think John is, is doing this on purpose. Whatever their reasons for saying that might have been, I think John is bringing this out to show us I, the irony of it, that, that just as they are blind to the political reality that they are in, in the same way they are totally blinded to the reality of their spiritual state. Just as they are clueless, seemingly, about the fact that they have been enslaved for most of their existence, they are also just as clueless to the fact they have no idea that they are in deep slavery to sin. And Jesus is going to then subtly lead them point by point to try to get them to open their eyes to see that they are, in fact, blind. And so he says what he says to them at the first, and their first retort is, you know, he says, you are... You he, you're doing what you hear from your father, and then they retort to him, protest number one, we are Abraham's children, meaning our salvation is dependent upon our physical descent from Abraham, and that is, what, that is why we're right and you're wrong. And Jesus says, nope. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did, but you don't. And so then they protest again. They retort again to him. This time, you can sense their frustration because they start with a personal attack on him. When they say, we were not born of sexual immorality, they're calling to mind the rumors that have been circulating about Jesus' birth, the virgin birth, that Mary was pregnant before Joseph, and who knows how that happened. There was rumors to the effect that Jesus had been born in sexual immorality. And so they say, we have not been born in sexual immorality. That attack on him is showing that they're getting frustrated by his first retort. And they say, God is our father. And Jesus replies, nope. If you were God was your father, then you would love what God loves, but you don't. And then he finally drops the bomb on them. He says, do you know... Do you want to know who your father really is? Can you imagine that scene in the temple, courtyards, precincts, wherever this is, and here's Jesus, the outcast, with the Sanhedrin. Imagine the college of cardinals in front of him, and he's saying, hey guys, you want to know who your father is? Your father is, wait for it, the devil. And do you know how I know that? It's because... You do the things the devil does. You love the things the devil loves. And just like your father, you hate truth and you want to kill what God loves and you want to kill truth when you see it standing in front of you. I want to pause just for a second and listen for a moment to the hard language that is used to describe the unbeliever here. In verse 37, he says, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. That finds no place in you is a word that could either mean cannot come into or a word that means find no room in. And so I think the totality of the idea is 
something that cannot enter and stay. And so really a better translation or a fuller translation of that would be that you seek to kill me because my word is not able to penetrate into you. And then he says in verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. The bear in there is a translation addition. It's not in the original text. The text just says, it is because you cannot, you are not able to hear my word. And so the picture presented here is Jesus speaking truth to these men and the word that he is giving to them is the gospel of grace. And they are categorically rejecting it. So the real unbeliever is presented here in this passage is the one who categorically denies the grace of God in favor of something else, no matter what kind of religious pageantry they may dress that up in. The picture is these men who are so blinded by spiritual pride that, that, that truth is bouncing off of them like a Kevlar vest. And they are under such strong slavery to their, to their religious pride, to their spiritual pride, that they are unable to break it in their own persons. Nothing less uh, than divine intervention is able to break that ignorance and pride. And so it gives us that picture of the unbeliever, but there's also a dire warning in here for us, for all of us, for both believer and unbeliever alike. Look at verse 844. It says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Um, He's saying, this is speaking, first of all, of the temptation in the garden. This is not, some people think this is talking about Cain and Abel and the first murder on earth. But he is talking about the temptation in the garden when the devil came and tempted man, Adam and Eve, to be like God by attempting to shape reality or truth to their own desires. And in the the, the famous words of that great theologian David Byrne, same as it ever was, we suffer from the same thing every time and any time that we are tempted to reshape reality as it's defined by the Creator through His revelation, and that's both natural revelation, what we're able to know from the way things are and his special revelation, what he's told us about Jesus and what he's told us about the way, not a way, the way to salvation. Anytime we try to tamper with that or reshape it or make it fit with what we want or what our desires are, we are trying to be like God. And the big problem with that is it just will never work because you're not God. We're not God. We don't have the power to define reality or redefine reality. We don't have the power to redefine the ethics that naturally flow out of the world as it is. And no amount of raw faith or clever arguments 
or belief or desire will ever change that. And so ultimately, the sadness of that is it ends in slavery to falsehood and it ends in destruction of people, the thing that God loves. But worse is this. There's, there's, a, there's a difference between killing and murder, right? Killing could be accidental, but murder is premeditated. And so this is saying... When Jesus says that the devil is a murderer, what that means is that the temptation to sin that we all feel that is currently coming at us is in fact a premeditated attempt to kill you. It is, it is an invitation to grasp the cannonball. It's an invitation to suicide. But do we see it as that? I mean, let's, let's stop here for just a second and think about the seriousness of this. It's not a character defect we're talking about. This is not uh, something that we need to work on. It's not something psychological. What this says, if, if this is true, and we believe it is, is that the temptation to sin is a calculated attempt to kill you. And if The devil can't do that. It is a calculated attempt to enslave you and to cause you to be the instrument of destruction and pain and chaos within the church. That is a serious thing, man. So, like I said in the intro, we all know what it means to abide, to hold tight onto something. And so the question we have to ask here, the question Jesus asks to us, Christians, is what am I abiding in? What are we holding on to? When you look at your life, what is it characterized by? Are you holding on to resentments? Does that characterize your life? Are you spending a long time throughout the day angry about what she did to me? or vice versa, what he did to me. Uh, It's an outward anger. There's an inward anger that's full of remorse. Are 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 we spending our days focusing on remorse, on 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 like just the desperate pain and suffering, reliving things that have happened in our mind over and over again, turning that anger inward on ourselves? It's possible to be abiding in the manipulation of what people think of you, which is pride. If you are consumed day in and day out with how you can manipulate other people's opinions of you by how you dress, by what you do, by the friends you have, like we talked about last week, the envy machine that's just churning inside of all of our hearts all the time, that we can be, we can abide in that And ultimately, that leads to anxiety, overwhelming anxiety and fear, because then your well-being is always dependent on how you can manipulate what someone thinks of you, and you can't do that. You can always fail, and you're constantly afraid, someone is going to figure me out, I'm going to be found out, and when I'm found out for who I really am, nobody will love me. And there, it, it, 
And that creates deep sadness, which then we try to cover up by abiding, abiding in entertainment. You're abiding in entertainment. I mean, are you on Facebook, social media, 24 hours a day? When you should be speaking with family and with friends. When the richness of that is waiting. And even, even super destructive forms of entertainment like pornography, even sexual immorality, really is not about sex. It's about the distraction of the mind from the pain that is floating inside of it from resentment and from remorse and from the anxiety and fear that goes with trying to manipulate everyone to believe that you are more than you are and the fear that they'll find out that you're not. It's so easy for us to become abiding in those things, to be entrapped by them. And ultimately, all those things are counterfeit gospels. They distract the mind from the unrest that enslaves us and they distract us from focusing on Jesus. And so, what do we do? What do we do for Christians and we find ourselves stuck in these things? What if we find ourselves abiding in one of these besetting sins or that, and we just can't seem to break out of it? What do we do? Do we fight it? Head-to-head battle with the sin every time it shows up? I mean, maybe. But you probably all know this from experience that that doesn't always work. Once it gets to the point of head-to-head battle with sin, you're going to lose. Or you can lose unless you run. <laughs> but the problem is, if, if it's something from the inside of you, if you run, there you go. Amen? You ever, ever try that? Leave the situation, find yourself right there with you when you get to the new place? I have. <laughs> and so, I mean, there's a part... There's a part to it that we fight against it. That's Traditionally, theologians have called that the mortification of sin. We try to kill the sin in our members. But there's a whole other side of that aspect called, that we've traditionally we've called vivification, meaning the life of Christ enlivening us and seeping into us, the life of the Spirit working its way out through our members and giving us life. And that's really the answer, and that is what abiding in Christ is really all about. It is possible for us as Christians to become entrapped in these sins. And the solution then is what one pastor, Thomas Chalmers, called the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, rather than just fighting the negative, we engage in the positive in order to be lifted up into life. If I were to say, no one think of a pink elephant, what happens? Most of you probably just thought about a pink elephant. If you focus on the pink elephant, no matter what you do, don't think of a pink elephant. You're thinking about the pink elephant. Rather than thinking about the pink elephant and defeating the pink elephant, you turn your focus and your attention. You turn from it and you focus on something new, something beautiful. You focus on Jesus. And so abiding in sin leads to slavery and death. But a true faith and an abiding faith 
is in Christ. So Jesus called our attention, this is point two, a true faith, an abiding faith in Christ. Jesus called our attention uh, to the fact that these men who were arguing with him neither did what Abraham did nor loved what God loved. And so to find out what it means then to abide in Christ, let's start there. What does it look like to do the things Abraham did? What does it look like to love the things that God loves? And so first, a true faith is doing what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Sunday school question. Anybody? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Paul in Romans 4 quoting Genesis 15, 6 where Abraham, God gives Abraham this promise. He comes to Abraham and he says all these promises, one of them being, and through your descendant, singular, we know that from Galatians, through your descendant, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's a promise of Jesus that one of Abraham's descendants would come and save the world. It's a promise not of what Abraham had to do to get something. It was a promise of what God was going to do for Abraham and for the world through him. Abraham believed that promise of God and so it was counted to him as righteousness. God declared him to be righteous and just even though he wasn't personally based on the faith that he had in what Jesus was going to do or his understanding of what the promise that God had made to him regarding Jesus was. And in Romans 4, in the same place where Paul quotes him, he also says that these things were not written for his sake alone, but also ours for all of us who believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. It's also something that we look outside of ourselves too. It's something that we see that God has done for us and all what we are to do in the same way that Abraham did is to not place our faith in our works and what we did, but to place our faith in what Jesus has done for us. And Abraham kept that belief in the promise of God throughout the course of his life, right? He did. But here's the thing. Abraham was a total train wreck for a long time. Let me show you some things. If you want to flip through the Bible on this, you can. If, uh, if not, don't, don't worry about burning pages. But if you have it, you can. Um, you know, we get the story of Abraham's life in the Old Testament, and we get commentary on it in the New Testament so that we can pull these things out. And we can see that Abraham's faith vacillated between weakness and strength, weakness and strength, as God led him through the pilgrimage of this earth. We know... Um, You know, if you just read Genesis, you read Genesis 12, it looks like God comes to Abraham and says to him, leave your family, leave your father's house, leave everything behind, go to the land of Canaan that I am promising to you, and therefore I'll make your name great, you'll become the father of many nations, and in your seed all the nations will be blessed. And if you just read it in Genesis, it looks like Abraham said, yes, sir, grabbed his stuff, left everybody behind, and went straight to Canaan. But if we look at Acts chapter 6, the speech of Stephen right before he's stoned to death, he starts out by saying, while Abraham was still in Mesopotamia before he went to Haran, the Lord came to him and said, 
So in other words, the promises were given to Abraham when he still lived in Mesopotamia. And then when we read the story, we see what happened next. Abraham didn't leave his father's house, didn't leave his family behind, didn't go to Canaan. He took his, he took his dad with him. He took a bunch of people with him. He took his nephew Lot with him. And he only went about 75 miles upriver to Haran and set up camp for a while. It was only after that that eventually he obeyed and went to Canaan. He had a rough start. Did anybody else have a rough start in the faith? (laughs) Amen. And then from there, it goes up and down. Abraham finally goes to Canaan. He settles in. That was good. And then there's a famine, and he doesn't trust God's promises for the land, so they they split. They go to Egypt, and instead of, he's afraid he's going to be killed, so he gives his wife to Pharaoh, says, she's my sister, gives his wife to another man, and that's bad. He didn't trust God's promises. So he comes back. There's this big battle between these kings, and he trusts God in that. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out with bread and wine. Isn't that amazing? And blesses him. And, uh, and that's great. What's the next thing he does? Hagar. He decides for himself that the promise of God is taking too long God's not able to accomplish it, so he needs to take things into his own hand, and he creates this giant international political mess that we still live with to this day. Nothing, I mean, nothing that you have done compares to that. Or me. And that's saying something. And right after that, God promises him Isaac, who will be the seed through whom the promise comes. And then right after that, Isaac gives Sarah to another king, afraid again. And after that, God then blesses him with the birth of Isaac. He comes through with his promises. And then just when everybody thinks the story's over and everybody thinks this is great, happy ending, Abraham's ready to walk off into the sunset of his life with the son that God has promised him, through which all the promises are going to be made one day, God wakes him up early in the morning and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son whom you love, your only son, and I want you to take him to a mountain where I will show you and I want you to kill him. And we know from the New Testament that Abraham was able to do that and march up that hill with his son knowing he was so sure that the promise of God was true, that he was willing to sacrifice his son knowing that if he did, God would be obligated to bring him back to life, to resurrect him. And so he was able to do it. And he had, that's the kind of unshakable faith that Paul is talking about that Abraham had in chapter four. But, but notice, please, friends, 40 years to get there. 40 years it took him to get there. You get that? I've got a friend that says, he says, you can look at, if you look at the snapshots, you'll be, you'll be in despair. But if you look at the video, you'll be encouraged. In other words, we can look at our, if we look at our lives, there's a bunch of snapshots that you could take of some awful moments that I would not want to be put up on the screen behind us. Amen, Kim? Um, and so if I were to look at those, if you were to look at those, that would be disturbing. And I'm going to guess that you all have some snapshots like that too. 
But if you look at the video, if you look at the video, what you see is a life that's a train wreck, but it's persevering. It's abiding. It's going up and it's going down. It's going up and it's going down. But through the center of that is a line, straight parallel going up as God works out his salvation in us. So don't trip out. Don't freak out about the snapshots. Learn, use those snapshots to drive you to abiding in Jesus. Use the video to encourage yourself and to assure yourself that yes, over the course of time, if I look, God's working in my life. Even if you're hanging on by a thread, hang on. Because God is hanging on to you. Now, true faith also loves the things God loves. You know, a lot of people try to answer that question backwards by stating, do you do the things God commands? That's not really the same question. A lot of people can do the things that God commands from an outward perspective. We can train ourselves to be obedient, but is the heart obedient? Does the heart love? And so we ask ourselves, do you love the things that God loves? Do you love the gospel? Do you think the gospel is foolishness or do you love it? And I don't, I mean love it in a way that sometimes when you think about it, it just hurts because you know you don't deserve it. That's the kind of love for the gospel. And do you love, do you love the law? Even when you're failing miserably at it, can you honestly say, I trust that God's law is good and right and I'm wrong and I'm failing in it but can you say as Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that even though I do what I don't want to do I don't do what I want to do in my innermost being I delight in the law of God unbelievers don't say that kind of stuff they don't you know, I've got a good friend. We have him breakfast the other day. He told me the most beautiful story, and it's a train wreck, but it's beautiful because, not of who he is, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in his life. He's the, 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 let me put it this way, for those of us who know him and love him. The extent the devil is going through to try to kill him and enslave him is astonishing. And he's trembling. But he keeps getting back up keeps getting back up and he keeps coming back to the church and he told me the other day, he goes, you know what my life verse is? My life verse is John 6, 68, which is where Peter looks at Jesus and he goes, where else would I go? Where else would I go? You have the words of life. That's a sign of faith and I'll tell you, there's 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 a lot of us here that have similar stories if I told you everything that's going on in the lives of people in this church right now, you would be dismayed. <laughs> but we're all working it out together. And we're all abiding in Christ together. And so, you know, we put all those things together. What does all this mean? It means that, it means that we abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ is the life of the death grip on these things, on God's promises, not our works, on cultivating over time love for God's revelation, for his word, so that we see over time, we come to see how beautiful he is 
And in comparison, we see sin and what we used to want in comparison, and we, it gets pushed out. We see beauty, and we want it. Abiding in Christ is abiding in those things, and it happens here in church and in the life of the church. The life of the church starts with Jesus in the heavenlies and comes down through the power of his Holy Spirit to which we are united to and enlivens us with this beauty and this light and this understanding of Jesus and then it goes out into the world through us. But here in the church, in fellowship, is where all this stuff happens. And so let me encourage you. This is an encouraging thing. Um, God, put it this way, and maybe this will be a shock to you. We are, we are not sanctified by good works. Did you know that? Did you know that? I think we think, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, and that's going to sanctify me. We're not sanctified by good works. Good works are the evidence that we are being sanctified. What we do is we abide in Christ. God has given us what he calls means of grace that we sit in, that we go to, that we abide in. Even in the midst of train wreck and sin in your life, you stick in it. You stay in the word. You stay with God. I was reading a, 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 I don't know, a theologian the other day or, or an author, and he was saying that he had a point in his life where it was so bad, he was being so tumbled by sin that he eventually just started praying through it. He just continued to pray to God as he was sinning. He just abided in Christ, even in the midst of the chaos of what was going on, and it, he slowly was able to break up and out of it. And we think we sin, God hates us, we have to leave and go and hide somewhere for a little bit before we can come back. But that's not what the Bible says. Go read Psalm 32. Look what it tells you. It tells you that you stay with God. You stay in his presence. You abide in his things. You seek out the things that he loves. You encourage yourself by his word. You remain and stay in constant, deep rhythms of prayer throughout your life. And then over the course of decades, God sanctifies you. And so, I had a buddy, a friend of mine from from school, Leanne Trees, she wrote an article that said, don't worry about being sanctified. That's God's job. Instead, you worry about abiding in Christ and trust that he'll work through it. And don't run. Don't run. No matter what you do, don't run. Jesus knew all about it before he came and died for you. It's not a shock to him. Stay. So abiding in sin leads to slavery and death and a true faith, a true faith and an abiding faith is in Christ. This last point, freedom and life are in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why this is all very good news. Let's talk about why that is. Why is this such good news? This is what I want to encourage you with. This is why I don't and didn't want you to freak out before we got to this point. Listen again to Jesus in verses 31 through 33. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
This means that our salvation is primarily about freedom. It's about being emancipated out from the power of sin that enslaves us. It's not about killing the party. It's not about restricting your choices. It's not about anything other than being free from the bondages of sin and being brought into a a reality, a state of being, where sin no longer has power over you at all. That's not in this life. You know, people think that true freedom, they think freedom is the freedom to sin or not to sin, but that's not really true freedom. True freedom is the power to not sin. And that is what happen, is happening to us right now. In sanctification, we are being slowly but surely delivered from the power of sin. And that is a benefit of the covenant. What Jesus won for us on the cross was not just our justification, that he has saved us from the penalty of sin, but he is also now in the power of his spirit saving us from the power of sin as we go through this life. And when we die or when the Lord returns, then we will be glorified and saved from the very presence of sin altogether. And that is our hope. Can you imagine a world where you were not tempted to sin at all and where you were not able to sin, where you were able to display and enact and, and act in righteousness with the same ease that you act in sin now. That's what I get excited about when I think of heaven. Not a change of location, but a transformation of our hearts so that we will be confirmed. It's called confirmed in ethical righteousness. We will be righteous and therefore be able to be in the presence of God forever. And the best part of this, and this is what, why it's really good news, is that if you see those things happening in your life, if you see the fact that you, uh, that you do believe the gospel, that you're not trusting in your own works for salvation, if you believe and, and you continue to believe in, in the promises of God and the word of God over these false promises the world gives us, if we love the law of God and know that it's good even when it's hard, even when we're failing at it, but we keep coming back. If we continue to cultivate love in our hearts by abiding in the things that God loves, then what that tells us is that we can know that this is the work of the Spirit in us. And if that's true, it means that the Son has set us free. And that what, that what we're doing is not striving to become something that we're not. What we're doing is we're experiencing the work of God in and through us, helping us to become what we already are in Jesus. And that's a good thing. Listen to Jesus one last time. Verses 35-36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's two promises in there I want you to take home with you. The first is that if the son has set us free, we will be truly free. In other words, we cannot be recaptured by the enemy. He may try to get you to believe that, 
but he's lying. Don't believe it. Abide in Christ. And the second thing is that if the Son has set us free, it means we become a son. We abide in the house forever. We have been adopted by the Father into this new reality of beauty and light. And that is what we are now. That is where we belong now. And that is God's promise to you, Christian. Lean into it. Lean into it. And don't run. Amen? Abiding in sin leads to slavery and death, but a true and abiding faith leads to freedom and life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the blessing it is to us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in this, that you would help us to not cut and run. We pray that when the devil assails us, we would trust in your promises over his lies. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to run to you and not away from you when we sin. And we pray that as we abide in Christ, as we abide in prayer, as we abide in your word, as we abide under the preaching of the word, as we abide coming to service every Sunday, as we abide in our mission groups and community together in the fellowship of the Spirit, that you would expel the lies of the enemy and bring us life in Jesus so that we might bring that life to the world around us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.